This week, I've got a guest that um, I've had a lot of great conversations with, so I thought I'd extend those conversations to the audience. Uh, first thing you do before you listen to any more of this episode is crack open Instagram, because you're probably on your phone, and go to Sunflower Man, because uh, that's his account. And he's a very visual guy, so it's very much worth seeing the, the context of why we're talking. And uh, and Matt, what else can you tell me about yourself? Uh, well, I again, like what you're saying, Sunflower Man's <laughs> the best way. The things that I create are much more interesting than the things that I say. Uh, but I, I don't know. I Says you. Travel. Yeah. I've lived on the road for four years. Uh, I'm in a transition now. I uh, paint and draw, meet people. I drink a lot of coffee. And I mean, that kind of sums up my whole life, I think, right there. Yeah. Well, so those are those are like the bigger things we have in common is coffee, obviously. Yeah. That might steal the whole show. But also we kind of work in the world of posting fashion related things online. And it's really different, like the illustration versus photography, the flow of things that we make is very different. Yeah. But it still ends up bringing us together to a lot of the same events yeah. and we end up working on similar projects. Yeah. So, uh, we live in the same universe. Exactly. Yeah. Just, uh, you guys were in, uh, Florence and you, you had a dinner at Dita Artigianale. Uh, is that where I was? I didn't, I, oh, <laughs> I, I don't on, know on the names of them about, uh, doing dinner with Dita Artigianale, which is a big deal cafe. What do you call it when you have more than one franchise in Florence? It was started by like a big deal. I can't remember his name. Barista who's winning competitions. We started a roastery in Italy and then he opened up Dita Artigianale in Florence. And then they have like three or four locations now. See, why Um, weren't we talking? Then I would have had this context and I I probably didn't even order a coffee at the the place because I didn't know it was something to know about. I was just in like the place that Anya thought was Instagrammable. (laughs) And then you were illustrating the event that we were at. So we were at uh, PT Womo 94 which uh, I'd never been to before. And it, you've been in the past, I take it? Yeah, yeah, I've been there in the past. I was there a year ago. And you were uh, doing illustrations. So uh, I guess to explain a little further, your, your illustrations are generally of men in great clothing. So, you know, m- menswear, fashion illustrations. Lately, you, you work mostly in watercolor. That's what I see you post a lot of. Yeah, yeah. The, the last four or five years have been like 99% watercolor. And um, it's, I mean... I'm just going to blow smoke for a second, but it's insanely beautiful. Like it's, it's, it's really, it, you, you make anybody look a, a lot cooler than they are in real life. So I always, you know, I always you know how to, to start a podcast yeah. off right there. <laughs> now I'm ready for this conversation. <laughs> so h- how did you get started in this whole world? Like I assume first it's that you, you know, developed art skills, which is kind of, uh, I'm sure was easy and only took a, f- a few weeks of practice, but after you became an exceptionally talented artist, how did you end up doing men's fashion and, and getting into this world? Uh, I, I'll jump back and do like a quick, quick summation. So Please. I was born with a pencil in my hand. So I've always been drawing. Just that's who I am. I was always known as the artist in school. In my senior class, I was best artist or whatever whatever the category is about being an artist in your senior class. That was me. I've always been that person. I didn't have a choice. It chose me. And so I knew that was my life, was creating art in some form or fashion. No pun intended. (laughs) Uh And I dropped out of art school twice, wondered who I was in the world, and then I stumbled on fashion. It's kind of an accident. I've tried to recount the story many times so I could try to 
dig deep and figure out how I <laughs> to prepare for this moment to prepare for this moment. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. There wasn't a single catalyst that ended me like that brought me to fashion. It was, I think, l- multiple things over multiple years. And then suddenly I was in men's fashion. Yeah. Were you interested in it when you were young? Like when you were a teenager, did you nope. care much about nope. clothes? Yeah. Nope, no, not at all. I I had this really weird, actually, this is something I haven't talked about on the show at all. Even though I work in fashion a lot, I don't think any episodes have really touched on it. So maybe maybe this would be a good chance for me to explain my connection to it. When I was young, I, I thought I was interested in, in fashion in general. like, And I think it turned out that was m- my photography interest. So I mm-hmm. would... Uh, like I'd look at fashion magazines and I'd like look at photos. This is probably when I was like 17, 18, 19. And I thought I was like, oh yeah, like clothes are cool. I like the idea of clothes, but I realized now I really, I wasn't understanding anything about garments or, or what people were wearing. I was much more looking at the aesthetic of ad design and photography and, and all those things, or at least not absorbing the fashion that I should have to really, uh, get any better at dressing myself or, or understanding clothing. <laughs> and I wanted to pursue something in it. I actually, uh, a friend of mine who was like my roommate at the time. So we like lived together and, and worked on a lot of projects together. We were starting up a little business right after college doing, doing design. And we were trying to do a clothing brand as an offshoot of it. And that was poorly conceived and, and absolutely was <laughs> not going to go anywhere. never would have worked. But um, I had you know, not heard that story. Yeah. Well, I mean, there isn't that much to tell. Like we were, we were young enough and I feel like now there's all these 20 year olds that are on the runway in New York. But you know, when I was young, I couldn't imagine actually succeeding at 20. Like I was just screwing around. Yeah. Nothing I was doing yeah. was of any consequence. So, you know, it was, it was more just like, I, I, I had an interest in it, but I look, if I look at the things I was doing, uh, nothing was any good. Like it was literally terrible. So fast forward to now, I think it's made me a lot more humble about fashion. Like I'm very not bold in how I dress, even though I go to a lot of fashion events. I spend a lot of time looking at clothes that like I don't really end up buying or uh, going to these major industry conferences where every garment manufacturer in the world is there. And so, yeah, I think it's sort of like it humbled me into feeling like I... I don't have a, a lot of knowledge about this and maybe I'm better off sort of appreciating what other people do. And, uh, you know, if I am talking about my own style or documenting it anyway, that it's, you know, it's not, it's not that crazy. Like I, I just try to dress well enough, <laughs> passably. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I wonder if this is maybe a reason we have vibed so well, because I think I come at it from a, a similar perspective or a similar angle where I've never been, I think now I'm sort of a fashion person because I'm in the industry, mm-hmm. but I've, I like, I don't understand fashion in the way that <laughs> I think a lot of the bloggers might yeah, yeah. understand fashion. I, I've appreciated the aesthetic. I like what the way you can present yourself to the world. There's an art to it. And I think maybe that's part of what attracted me, but like the, the fashion aspect I still struggle with myself. <laughs> yeah, the actual. I mean, I spend more time thinking about fashion in terms of sort of the, um, it's, too, it's too big to say the philosophy of it. That sounds too pretentious. But the, um, what what are you aiming to communicate by what you wear? I, yeah. I think about that a lot more than being trendy or, you know, fitting into the season or wearing what I should wear. It's much more about like, you know, there is a group of people 
around you at all times, and you are conveying information to them by what you wear. And that's really important whether you consider it or not. Like if you just want to yeah. be a non-combatant in the fashion world, you're still communicating that to everyone. Um, yeah. And that is, that's more than just saying like, I don't like shopping at the mall. It, it actually, it all depends on the, the context of who the people are too. So in the fashion world, by dressing a bit more conservatively, you're sort of like my type of conservatively, meaning just like a normal button down shirt or like a black t-shirt or just like s- simple things that, that fit me as opposed to something that's making a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of communicating like I work in the fashion world, but yeah, I'm not yeah. trying to be seen. I'm like, it's more like a stagehand, right? And if you are uh, a, if you work in a labor type job where dressing fashionably, like wearing a button down shirt at all is dressing up and putting on a suit jacket is, is fancy and you only do it for weddings and funerals, then <laughs> your group might perceive you as they may perceive it as being like effeminate. If it's that kind of culture or as being um, snobby, you know, so like you are dressing to your community of people that you want to present a message to. And nobody thinks about it. like, you don't really need to think about it. I think it's fine that most people don't spend much time considering about it. But that's like where my like fashion brain kind of lives is how are we interacting with the groups around us when we get dressed in the morning? Yeah, I think honestly, I think that that is what fashion is, right? The reason somebody wears something crazy is to get attention because I think they understand that they're communicating a message to the world. So I think you're coming at it, but maybe your your history and your profession and the things they're interested in pull you in a different direction when you are actively communicating to the world. Well, the, the most interesting things I see in it is the lineups for special editions of brands that most people have never and will never hear about. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's some Off-White collaborated with Balenciaga and I don't, did that ever happen? I don't know if that happened. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what I mean? Like that, okay, so people in the fashion world, like all these brands, like there are just so many brands that are incredibly important to them and being associated with them is is important enough to wait in a very long line and spend huge amounts of money but you're only sending a message to a very small community that is kind of yeah. the other people that are willing to wait in that line yeah. but it's worth the investment like there is actually a payoff to that investment okay some people are just spending all their money and, and it's going nowhere but it, <laughs> in other ways it like it brings that's the price of entry that's table stakes to be there with those yeah. with, with that fashion community. Yeah, yeah, if you want relevance within that community, you have to be a part of that I guess I'm going to say a game. But yeah, you have to put that money down. You have to invest some sort of effort to wear the right clothing or have the right product. Um even if it's vintage, maybe you you wear a throwback, but it is to if it's relevant to the people you want to be around, that's the price of entry. I don't want it to make it sound too crazy to normal people, though. Like, I, I'm just like thinking about how I describe that. And oh, if you, it's, it, it, it's like is wearing, it crazy? I mean, is no, it as no, crazy no. as it sounds? No, it's like going to an interview for an office job and you know you need a suit and trousers and a pair of either like black shoes. That's the price of entry. You don't get in if you're wearing cargo shorts and a plain white tee, yeah. right? You don't get that office job. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah, if you're, if you're going to apply to be uh, in the Democratic Party and you wear a red tie to the interview, or you yeah. you just sort of yeah. don't get the, the, the rules of the game for the thing that you want to participate in. Yeah. And yeah, so I think just by pretending those rules don't exist, or that that isn't like a, a interaction that we have with all the people around us, doesn't make it go away. Yeah, it's, it's part of the nonverbal communication. We all have 
certain uh, gestures and oh do you hear the dog yeah i do oh this podcast just got more exciting it's yeah, much more it's visceral so now <laughs> yeah uh wesley cannot control himself when somebody pulls up in the driveway where are you yeah. what what's it are you in uh texas i'm in i'm in fort worth texas right now it we'll say dallas fort worth most people know dallas but they don't know fort worth so i'm in fort worth texas right now actually at the in-laws house at the moment and it looks like we'll be here for a couple of years. Whoa, years. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. I mean, especially considering you were all over the world before. So any other times we had Skyped, you were, I mean, you were in Italy for a while. Yeah. What were you doing? What was your whole travel the world mission statement? Yeah, I think we didn't really have a mission statement. I think it was, it was just for us. My wife and I were living on the road and we were traveling, doing three months here, three months there. So we lived in Italy and Portugal and Croatia, Greece, England, uh, France, a little bit of time in Malaysia. And for us, it was just a way to experience life outside of the U.S. That that was it. Like We didn't travel for work uh, until the end. The last probably five months of our four-year journey was about work. We went to Florence because of Pity Womo. I went to England specifically to network with some of the the posh British brands. But the first, I mean, first three and a half years, it was just, let's experience a new place. Let's see what it's like. We'll live there for three months. We'll work. Like I I worked the entire time. So I just did my freelance fashion illustration and I traveled with a portable scanner and my watercolors. And so we just worked and existed within different countries. That was kind of our ethos. I mean, you realize that is literally the dream for like every artist. <laughs> like, yeah. That's that's like what novels are written about is that all I want to do is bring my my pencils and paints with me everywhere I go and and see the whole world. And you made it you made it real. I mean, what do you think let you make that a reality that would seem like an impossible obstacle to other people? Oh, the the internet. So okay, so I mean, we there was a collision of circumstances that are there were pretty basic, but made it very easy. My wife had just graduated college. We just got married. We didn't have a home, didn't have a car, didn't have furniture. So we were free in that sense to just make a decision and not have to think about it too heavily. And then the internet, right? I could do my work literally from anywhere because my clients just need a digital copy for their website, for Instagram, for Facebook, for whatever. They don't need the physical copies of what I'm creating. So I could take the scanner with me, take a camera, and then as long as I had Wi-Fi anywhere in the world, I could do my work. So did you already have a client base before you took off or did, did you establish it on the road? Like that I, would, that would started, seem like a huge obstacle if you were just getting yeah. started. You know, it was like, where, was where just, did these clients come from? Just getting started. Uh, one thing, I don't know if you know this about me, Tyler. I don't plan things out uh, <laughs> almost at all. All right. Good to know. So I'm, I'm a very emotional and a reactive person. I I had one big gig in Atlanta where I was living for four years and I quit everything else I was doing and decided, all right, I have this one gig. I guess I can do this full time. Not a smart decision, but most things I do aren't very smart decisions. Uh, so then, you know, I'm just kind of scraping by, picking up any little gig that I could get. And that was essentially my life for two years. But during that time, I'm emailing and DMing and connecting with people in the industry because I I had made a decision that I wanted to be the men's fashion illustrator. Mm-hmm. There was n- literally nobody else doing that. So I decided I'll be that person. But while I was trying to figure out how to be that person, I was taking any any job that I could online. 
as, as long as it was related to uh, illustration in some way. I think that's completely following through with some of the best fashion advice or fashion career advice that, um, <laughs> that, you know, I, I, um, I took to heart in believing it, but I don't know how well I executed it that, uh, if you're going to pursue something like this, like a dream job, don't bother unless you plan on being the best at it. Yeah. Absolutely world-class. The reason people will choose you is because you're better at it than the other people you're competing against. Like be the best in a field. But what was perfect about what you did is that you were going into a field that, that, that was much more vi- uh, not viable. I mean, like not, not yeah. to discredit you well, for your, your talent, but like compared to in photography, it's um the the technical hurdle is very small to bu- just mm-hmm. go buy a camera, whereas the hurdle to become a talented illustrator is extremely high. Very few people even cross the you know initial barrier to be able to start doing it, let alone ex- excel and become one of the best. Yeah, it's a bit of a double. So I mean, there are there are layers to that. Obviously, right now in the men's fashion industry, there are six of us in the world doing what we're doing. So it's not hard to be one of the best. Uh, But in fashion illustration as a whole, there are thousands, thousands of people doing fashion illustration. Mm -hmm. It's just that 99% of them are in the women's industry. Right. So I was just reading on business of fashion, the menswear industry globally is 40% of the industry now, Mm. which is crazy. Mm -hmm. It has never been that big. So the opportunities to do men's fashion illustration are huge. But the other side of that is in men's fashion for the last 50 years, nobody's even thought about illustration as a form of marketing or as a form of sharing what they do. So nobody ever even considers hiring an illustrator. So that that's the double edged side. Nobody wants nobody not nobody wants to hire me. Nobody even thinks (laughs) about hiring me. Hire you, yeah, right. I mean, you you have to like do the work yourself. Getting yeah. everybody to, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get that hurdle. Like, um, there's all sorts of, uh, I see it now in, um, crossing the bridge between doing work on, uh, traditionally it's been a lot of stuff we do is based on Instagram because, uh, the fashion world knows how to sponsor Instagram posts yeah. in general. Yeah. Um, and they don't have that same knowledge about say YouTube videos. So Which now, is, now that, that, that astonishes me, yeah, and I, I understand that's very true. That blows my mind. But YouTube is bigger. It's a bigger social network. the The biggest videos on YouTube are much bigger than the biggest photos on Instagram. But it's just there's a there's a flow of how do you purchase a sponsored Instagram post? How does a community respond to it? Like, what are the perceptions? What are the everything? Everything is just pretty fluid and understood. Whereas, uh, you know, so lately on on my YouTube things, I've, I've had a few Squarespace sponsorships, which is great. They have a path that they've established of like, this is how we like to do sponsorships. So when I work with them, I'm like, I, I, they know how to make it work for them and I know how to make it work for me. And it's all very fluid, but not many companies have found that path of how do we easily integrate uh, YouTube in our marketing strategies and make it something that the audience is going to appreciate and, you know, it'll connect with them and we'll still be seen and have a, a reasonable response for whatever it is we're trying to market. So, yeah. So maybe, maybe you can explain that further, but from my perspective, not really being active on YouTube, it seems like it's easy to be on Instagram. So everybody in the fashion industry is on Instagram. So they already, 
even if they have never hired an influencer, they would automatically have an idea of how they might go about it versus I just uh, the barrier to entry on YouTube is much greater. Mm-hmm. So not everybody, even the people like people who are working in the industry behind the scenes, they're not on it. So they just don't understand how it's used. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, that's where you are with uh, illustrations. Like, well, we know these illustrations look great, but how do we tie them into what we're doing? So, yeah, no, I mean, but I, I, I think back to how you made this work and turn it into an excuse to travel the world. I think it's, yeah, it's really amazing. And um, could you give us any little pills of general advice that would help for people that are just pursuing a creative passion and want to turn it into, into freelance? I mean, one thing it sounded like you touched on is, you know, live within your means, like not having <laughs> a lot of hard assets to be worried about at home seems to have helped. Yeah. I mean, we still have very, very few hard assets, but yeah, few assets um, makes it really easy. But at the same time, the way we lived is three months in one place means that the rent is much cheaper than it would be if we were doing two weeks or one week or a month. Right. Treating it like a vacation would be a lot more pricey. Oh, yeah. We definitely, like we, I mean, we enjoyed our experiences in different countries, but we didn't, like we were working a ton. Um, So we, if you think about it this way, it's as if I was living in Fort Worth the whole time, right? I would have gone to work every day. I would have just done the same normal routine, except I happened to be living in a coastal town in Portugal. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I love it. What's your plan for the next while? You're going to hang out in America? Yeah, we're hanging out in America. We're hanging out in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, Dallas. So so some things I learned once we once I knew we were going to be living here, Dallas-Fort Worth is the fourth largest economic center in the United States. It's New oh. York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas-Fort Worth. Wow. Uh, Fort Worth is now the 15th largest city in the country. Dallas is number nine. Arlington is squeezed right between them. It's one giant metropolitan area, and Arlington is number 50. Um, So we have three of the top 50 cities in the country, all within one metropolitan area. Yeah, there's a lot going on. crazy. Yeah, there's so much. There, I think, are, oh man, I don't remember all the the numbers, but the number of uh, Fortune 500 companies that are here is like disproportionate to its size. Uh, The number of billionaires is maybe the second largest number of billionaires in the country live in Dallas. And I think San Francisco is number one. So I think you could start doing a lot of, uh, you know, portraits above the mantle for these billionaires. Sounds <laughs> yeah. like you could... Uh, yeah, I was just, just starting to think, how do I... <laughs> tap how do into I that billionaire market. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but th- that actually is something that I've faced a bit in being in, in Calgary, Canada. Uh, I think there's a perception that you need to be in New York, LA, London... Toronto, Paris. Like yeah. you have to be in a, in a really major city to be working in either the fashion industry or media industries in general. And do you feel at a disadvantage by not being near the biggest media hubs? Yes. Yeah, I definitely feel a disadvantage. I felt a disadvantage the entire time when living on the road, since especially since we weren't angling it toward advantaging ourselves with, man, I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. We'd live where we wanted to live. We didn't live where we thought work would be. Mm-hmm. So we would live in a small town in Portugal, a small town in Croatia, a small town in Greece. Oh, we lived in Athens for a little while, but Athens has, or Greece has so many troubles, uh, you can't find work there. Uh, so we, we didn't 
angle it toward work. So the entire time I was living in these towns of 4,000 people, 14,000 people, <laughs> yeah. no connection to fashion, no connection to illustration. And so everything, like I existed only on Instagram. And that's how I got all of my work. And it was great being one of the few people in the world doing what I'm doing was an advantage that way. But yeah, not living in New York, I just don't make those casual connections. Yeah. And is that the the missing thing is like being able to just hit someone up for coffee or have a friend of a friend that can do something for you? Like it, it's just those relationship things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or just the opportunity to go to an event where somebody else who would like to work with you is, but doesn't have the time to reach out. Right. But if they see you in person, okay, let's work together. That's There's zero friction there. Well, the other big side of it that I always see is a perception of the value of being from those cities. And, and it extends to everybody, which I think is is weird. So with um, normal suburban middle America people or middle, middle Canada, people that are <laughs> not from the huge cities, there's um, a feeling... Or I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to speak for them because I don't feel this way. But a lot of people look at anything that happens in the major cities that I mentioned. If you if you go live in New York for a while, and then when you come back, you like bring this New York essence with you, or like you hmm. are a New Yorker. Or if somebody is born there and, and and comes and moves to your town, like they have this New York qualification. It's like going to an Ivy League school, right? It's like you have this sort of stamp of appeal or stamp of approval from big city USA saying, I am from a major <laughs> metropolitan area and I have a global awareness that you've been unable to, to access in your small town. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I, I just, there, there's so many, I mean, fashion brands do this that are based out of, you know, say based out of Texas and they'll be, and they'll put New York on the label or, the, mm. you know, um, sort of wanting to associate with, one of the major cities more than they are because it adds legitimacy. And the weirdest part, so this comes to why it's so strange to me, I understand that people in suburbs would feel that like exotic big city thing gives you some credibility because maybe they haven't traveled there. But it also works for people in those cities. Like I feel like New Yorkers or Torontonians or from LA want to see that you are from another major city because it's like a qualification it's 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 just one more thing to check off on a list. It's not necessary, but it has an influence and it, it seems to matter to me, to them. To me, it seems to matter to them. I don't know. Is, yeah. it, is that just me? No, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think even, because I, I, I've never lived in any of those places, but living on the road also kind of gives you that same sort of credibility. It's something that's exotic. Not many people have done, mm. but to be able yeah. to do it, you must have some sort of knowledge or understanding or access. And how did you describe that when you were on the road? So I even have a challenge of expressing that, that, um, you know, when people ask where we're from and I say Calgary, um, like I'm, I love the city we're from. I'm super proud of it as a hometown, but I, I want to communicate that, you know, so I'm falling into the same trap. It's like, I want to communicate that like, but I spend a lot of time in bigger cities um, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know how to do that in a non-pretentious way. So I usually try to keep it pretty simple and I don't really uh, talk about it much other to see, you know, except like we work on the road quite a bit. How did you explain yeah. it to, to people when you were traveling a lot? We never, I never figured that out. Yeah. I could never come up with an answer that made sense because I feel like we were like bumbling idiots every time. Like, oh, where are you from? Well, the last I'm place I'm a man did, of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't sound pretentious at all. <laughs> no, exactly. So it was like, uh, uh, 
from Texas, but like, oh, you live in Texas? No, yeah, uh, I haven't been there in for more than a month in the last four years. I was, I lived in Atlanta. It's funny. It's like being humble about it puts you at a disadvantage, you know? (laughs) So it bothers, it would bother me to have like a really bold answer to be like, you know, I'm I'm from Calgary, but I uh, spend most of my time on airplanes and in other bigger cities. <laughs> um, you know, and I, like I could try, I, I can't even fake it very well, apparently, but you know, there's ways you could say it that like try to make you sound cooler and yeah, not having the, the sort of having self-awareness and worrying about that perception comes across <laughs> worse. I think, you know, makes you turn yeah. into a five minute story instead of, uh, having a snappy answer. But yeah, I don't think people want to hear that you've lived such a gl- glamorous life, but you need a five-minute story to tell me about it. Then it feels fake. It almost feels like, why are you acting so humble about it? Like, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if I've, you wanted to, if you really wanted to tell me all this, why are you pretending to be so humble about it? Yeah, no, it's it, it's weird. There's also this funny thing of that, like, as you, because I'm, I'm sure a, a lot of people that are listening just, like, we happen to have worked in ways that, ma- like, made us travel quite a lot. And yeah. I think there is a large perception out there that there is glamour to it and it's funny because like it it's really it is nice to travel like I, I i very much like it but it's interesting how it becomes normalized as you mm-hmm. as you do it more and it becomes it i don't know it just it i do, i don't have that same perception of romance of it once i'm doing it that i might have yeah. had when i was staying at home yeah when you're sitting on the plane and you can't fall asleep but <laughs> yeah. it's the middle of the night and you're like the i have to work when i arrive yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Or, or you just like you haven't you haven't had good food for two days because you don't know what's in the city. Or you, um, yeah, your hotel room's a mess because it's not big enough for the suitcase you brought, or whatever. I mean, there's a million things like day after day that just wear you down. And um, it's not that it's not worth it. I mean, like it's it's just I don't know. It's just interesting how your perception changes when you're in it and when you're hoping for it. You know, definitely. And I don't think for us it's ever been. Like, well, no, I think actually when we lived in Florence, we were in Florence for five weeks, I think, four or five weeks around the time of pity. So we decided to stay there for a month because that's how we travel. Um, and pity's like a week-ish with all the events that surround it and everything. Uh, that one was the most like a vacation for me, even though like I was working every day. I think we spent the most time just walking around the city eating too much gelato. That's all um, there is in that city. That's all there is in that city. Oh, okay. Mm, You probably didn't run into this. There was this, along the Ponte Vecchio, the big jewelry bridge. Yep. There was a gelato shop and they didn't have prices anywhere. And it was late at night, so we walked and it was one of the only places open left. We actually tried to find a different gelato shop that was had really great ratings, but it was closed or shut down or something. So we're like, okay, we just walked into this other one because we wanted gelato. And it turned out a cone of gelato was like nine euros each. <laughs> was it amazing? It was fine. It was good because we didn't look this one up on Google or Yelp or anything beforehand because we were just devastated from not being able to go to the other one. And it turned out it had just like one star reviews across <laughs> the board because everybody walked in and walked out paying... 10 times as much as you should. I got to say, I had the worst food experience there, um, <laughs> no. which is 
so we went to we went to like a couple nice restaurants like on a, on a few nights or when there was events you know we did eat at some good places fancy places are good they're generally good everywhere you go but what was terrible is like the street food and the casual uh, restaurants yeah i feel like they just gave up and, and handed the city over to the tourists that they're like, yeah, we don't have oh, to yeah. try to make good pizza anymore. We don't have to worry about nice quality ingredients like the tomatoes. I get better tomatoes uh, that aren't grown locally here in, in the plains of Canada <laughs> than I was getting in Italy. And uh, no, really, like the normal food was actually terrible. I'm sorry. To say. I believe it. Florence was a contradiction to me because... I loved it so much, but it was like 90% tourism. Yeah. But we, we would go to the local market uh, every couple of days. And because we, I mean, we cook like 90% of our food, even when we live on the road. And so we would go to the market, get all of our vegetables and fruits. And I had some of the best uh, uh, salami I've ever had in my life Ooh. from this little market. And it was, there were definitely tourists there felt more local i mean maybe i was just fooling myself well here i'm gonna i'm gonna redirect the conversation because i'm just remembering how much i don't enjoy other people telling me about places i haven't been (laughs) but uh so when you travel how do you keep nice clothes intact on the road i mean generally like you wear quite a few suits uh button down shirts that could easily be wrinkled um you know nice hats nice nice things but you, you have limited access to a closet uh, you have limited space inside a suitcase. Do you have any good uh, packing hacks or, uh, you know, how do you maintain uh, fashion dignity when you're on the road? Yeah, I think my main uh, advantage is as a fashion illustrator, I don't have to be a, a style savant. Mm. Um, nobody expects me to have the coolest clothing all the time. They expect me to look good because I'm in the industry. And over the last four years, I've developed a uniform. And I'm a, a huge proponent of this for economic reasons, for ecological reasons, and for just like sanity. Having a uniform saves so much time and energy. I have, and I have accessories that spice things up. So it's not so boring. Like I have the rings, I have the hat, I have some fun glasses. But I had uh, one full suit with me over the last 14-month journey we did on the road in Europe and Malaysia. One full suit and one travel jacket. And then everything else was shirts and trousers, but not even that many. I think I had four or five shirts that I cycled through and two other pairs of pants. And that was about it. Well, so yeah, I mean, the, yeah, that is what I would recommend too, like keeping it relatively simple. I mean, for me also, I feel a need to avoid white things <laughs> because oh, my, my oh, ability yeah. to laund, laund, launder, launder is uh, limited. <laughs> you know, the the truth is that things probably are just going to get worn more aggressively than they would at home where I have access to, you know, things I can wear it like once every couple weeks instead of potentially two or three times in a week. Yeah. No, in the uh, comment about white is huge. I didn't have anything white. No, I had a white shirt, but I ended up throwing it away like a couple months in. I was like, I can't keep wearing this anymore. Uh, But everything else was light shades of gray or Maybe blue. I'm trying to remember everything I wore on my last trip. Blue is one of my go-to colors. Yeah, but I kept it simple. Do you bring a steamer or do you iron stuff from like hotel room uh, ironing boards? We would hang dry a lot of our clothes and that 
generally would help out with wrinkles, but then otherwise I would try to find an iron somewhere. Because we, we pack this little uh, portable steamer. I mean, so for Anya, it matters more because she's actually doing like the fashion photography thing. Mm. So I, we have like we have a European and American steamer that are usually just like both packed. <laughs> and uh, so that means I get you know bonus access to it. But I always feel like, so I'm at a disadvantage too in trying to look half decent because of photography because i really often have a backpack on mm, yeah and that just kind of ruins clothes if it's hot it means that you yeah oh. like you're gonna get extra sweat and it's just wearing on the shoulders and yeah so that's the thing i haven't solved at all is how to be a well-dressed working photographer uh it, i mean in, unless you just kind of give up on having the gear you want like when i see um the sartorialist around like he was he was there he never has a bag he always just brings the one camera and i i can't even i mean i don't even know if he has extra batteries in his pockets or anything like he seems to bring I mean, very little probably doesn't he probably take, as an assistant right yeah yeah i guess yeah yeah probably okay that's that's like the unseen force that i'm not catching right yet. yeah you need you need to hire a bag with legs yes. and then you're unfortunately that's who i am that's my job right now i'm yeah, the hired exactly. bag yeah. with legs so uh, how do you be a hired bag with legs that uh, <laughs> looks half decent? I don't know. You're, you shoot mostly in the city though, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it's still, I mean, it's still, there's usually a couple lenses that I'll need. Like, you don't want to have like a, a four wheel roller, like a oh, small cake? Actually, like a little wagon. Little red wagon. Red aluminum <laughs> wagon just full of gear. Just like bouncing on the cobblestones. That, yeah, that's true. But then you hit some stairs and no, it's, it's kind of, it has to be a backpack. Uh, yeah. That's another actual just important tip for anybody that tries to do this with a sling bag, like a shoulder messenger bag. Oh, you just don't. You are, are going to ruin your body. It's destroy yourself. Totally not worth. And so common. It's uh, so many people buy one one sided camera bags. In your backpack, though, you've you've also considered like how it affects your spine, right? Because you you probably have a backpack that oh. is higher on your shoulders and yeah. tugs. I, I spent so much time thinking about this and worrying yeah. about it. Um, yeah, and when I pe- see people wearing a backpack that's really low slung, like they loosen the straps, it stresses me out. Like it makes me yeah. feel, un- it makes my back ache just seeing them wear it. Because oh. the, the biggest difference is you just have to pull it up almost as tight as it will go. So it's at mm. the top of your shoulders. And de- depending on the day, the cross strap really does help. It can take a lot of weight off because then it can start to fall on your back. Um, so instead of pressing down from your shoulders, the weight can start to fall on the flat surface of your back, like almost at like the top of your butt. Yeah, it's distributing the force of gravity from just the top of your shoulders to oh. your your torso. And it's a lifesaver. So a lo- the pain of wearing backpacks, because even though I try hard to make it work, sometimes like when, in, on this Italy trip, there was one day that my my watch was saying I we walked over 30,000 steps in a day, which is a lot. And I have, you know, like a 20 pound backpack that whole time and it gets really sore. I mean, like it, it, it sucks. So that was a lot of the motivation that I started going to the gym lately, which is like a totally new thing for me. I hate exercise. (laughs) I I have never wanted to do this and never thought I would. And, um, I was like, you know what? I think if I was just stronger, this would be less terrible. So yeah, that's uh, that was a big thing getting me to like um, just you know work out on a regular basis all of a sudden, which is new since getting back from Italy. No, I saw that post on your Instagram. I was like, oh no, is is Stallman selling out for the gram now? But that's you were actually working out now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, 
it's been uh, it's been an experience. And what's been really helpful is that I have a really like obsessive interest uh, laser beam that um, I, I get into mm. a thing, and then I just read about it nonstop for months. <laughs> you know, like I get into color grading, and now I want to know everything about old Hollywood techniques of film timing, and I get into. I don't know what else did I get? Well, a long time ago, I got into drumming and I tried to spend a long time trying to be half decent at that. And I just yeah. get, I get really hyper-focused for, you know, maybe three to six months in, in, in a thing at a that, time. That's something I think your audience could really, your audience uh, being a proxy for me could really benefit from. How is it just something you don't understand about yourself that forces that on you? Or is there something you do that helps you no, it's, zero in? It's totally an unseen force and can also be detrimental. Like I don't, I don't think it's all positive, <laughs> but it, um, it's just, how, yeah, it's just how I end up thinking. And I think it's a lot of the time I'll end up having the best conversations with people that are like that. So uh, like a common guest on the show is Chris Dowsett and he, definitely thinks the same way. And it's not that we have the same interests or the same opinions, but that we both force or we both have a hard time not looking into a million different topics and, and getting really, really interested in them, you know, one minute at a time. So exercise and fitness is a pretty good one. Like if there's anything I'm going to get obsessed oh, yeah. about, I'm like, I got to try to keep my mind on this one long enough to make a difference. Cause if I yeah. get yeah. really into it and I don't see any results, I probably won't try again. Yeah. Like what? Well, it'll yeah, be really yeah. hard to motivate myself to get into it one more time. So I just, I got to keep this focus for, well, I don't even know how long, like I think like six months. If I don't yeah. follow through for six months, I, I won't see it, but fortunately it from, habitual. Yeah. And it's, it's been pretty good. I, I think it's going to happen, but from everything that I read, uh, newbie gains are a real thing where basically when you just are starting out, you mm. make big progressions really quickly because you just have so far you can go. Your body is <laughs> yeah. so used to being a slob and, and totally inactive that any stressful activity you put on your muscles really quickly builds more muscles and builds more capacity for your heart to pump oxygen and your lungs to take in oxygen and to just everything quickly improves. And then it gets harder after you kind of hit your first plateau, which I'm nowhere near. But if I can get to that plateau, <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to. I, I don't know how to make habits in my life. I remember as a small, small child, I, I learned to brush my teeth. I didn't learn to brush my teeth consistently. I got to a point where I hated not brushing my teeth. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what that point was, but it, That's great. it wasn't something like, <laughs> yo, thank goodness. Um, it wasn't something I consciously chose. It was something that eventually one thing outweighed the other. And I haven't found the the weight for me with exercise. Yeah. I learned, I mean, I actually learned that lesson the hard way of uh, like being kind of bad, have bad uh, teeth brushing habits until... And and I had no cavities until all of a sudden I was like a later teenager and they the cavity cavities just came flooding in. I'm like, oh, Ooh. this is the wrong way to learn the lesson. <laughs> now, now I worry about it a lot more. But uh, you know, it's it's nice if you can beat the lesson to the punch like that. And uh, oh, I also sh I have to shower every night. I have to. Yeah. Because I I cannot sleep unless I shower at night. Yeah. The, I mean, these, and, these are these are good. <laughs> these are negative habits no, or good uh, obsessions. What. It's great. I just wish I knew how to force myself to have a counterbalance. Right, a like yeah. maybe, maybe if I hated sugar enough, 
So no, that's a really good example. That was the first thing that I did with eating better was I'm like, okay, just no more things that are primarily sugar. I'm just totally going to cut out anything that is a vehicle for sugar and uh, doesn't really do anything else. So I still eat things with sugar in them, but no candy, no yeah. pop yeah. slash soda. Wait, what do you call it in Texas? Soda? In Texas? Coke? I guess it's soda. Yeah. Atlanta, it was Coke. And then in Michigan, it's pop. The Coke one is so weird to me because it's like, isn't that taken? Anyway, cutting out that stuff. Yeah. So I, and I had experience from this before, cause there was a period I was, I was vegan for about five years. So Ooh. like I got pretty used to the, the big shift is all of a sudden when you start looking at a menu or, or making a decision about food, you're like, I'm seeing this section as food and I'm seeing this section not as food. Yeah. And once your head starts to do that, it gets like crazy easy. And the biggest one I like ever, like literally everybody should do is sugar is just start saying like, yeah is the primary ingredient, is this like the main reason I'm eating this to get sugar? Is it that the main thing I'm getting out of this? Then then it's not an option. It's not food. It's only bad for you. Yeah. And I, I also am a strong believer that like it should be none. I think if you have like, you know, uh, like you're, you're have, regulating a certain amount per day and you're like, well, it's Thursday and I've only had three sweets this week. So I'm due for my little cupcake. Um, you're going to have a way harder time than just like, look, this is doing me no good. It's having no measurable impact except for a, a great metaphor <laughs> the other day is that it's like, it's like basically masturbating with your mouth. Like, <laughs> it's just like giving yourself self pleasure that has no real benefit for your life. Like, it's just like, this just feels good. Like nummy nummy, but it's not helping you and it's not Im- improving tomorrow. This is no improvement. You know, it lasts for moments and then it's gone and you're in a slightly worse place. Just slightly. I mean, yeah, like what, what harms a cupcake? But um, no cupcakes yeah, is better. So um, no cupcakes is now. way better. Yeah. yeah when, we, when we're on our own, um, when we buy all of our own groceries, it's so easy. Because we are so, I mean, look, Ruth makes amazing desserts, but she makes them herself. So she can regulate how much sugar goes in it. Mm-hmm. She, she is much more careful about that than I am. So I'm glad she's the one making it. That, that helps. Uh, but when we're with our our in-laws, we are not buying all of the groceries. We're not making all of the meals. So ooh, it really, it really throws us for a, a curve. Do you cook as well? Like, do you uh, make d- dinners as well as the desserts? Yeah. And we cook when, when it's just us, when it's just me and Ruth, we cook like 95% of our meals. Oh, but wait, what did and you do on the road? Did you rent places that had kitchens? Yep. Everywhere except for in Malaysia, we didn't have a kitchen that we could use. And that was, that was actually really bad because they cook everything with condensed milk and added sugar. Added it's sugar. Crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah. With the condensed milk, which is also really sweet. That's like the sweet uh, milk, right? Like, the, yeah, I, I know the kind. Yeah. And that is, it's basically like ice cream that's not frozen. Yeah. So from what, I think we saw signs around Malaysia, just like warning people of the dangers of obesity. I think Malaysia is one of the most obese Southeast Asian countries. Oh, wow. And we didn't have a kitchen in Malaysia. So we ate all of our meals out, which, because then it was hard to get, it's hard to get fresh vegetables and we didn't have a kitchen to prepare them in. And, oh, so we definitely put on weight, but then we went back to Italy and we, we've never, I've literally never driven a car outside of the U S so we walk everywhere Mm -hmm. and that was great. But being in Texas, you can't walk anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I mean, actually it's funny because Calgary's very Texas ish, except for the weather. 
Um, oh. And yes, yeah, same feeling of uh, there's it's only driving. It's you have to make an effort to walk. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like like I would die of of heat stroke here if I tried to walk anywhere. Do you intentionally exercise at all, like uh, on the road or at home? Uh, there was there was a solid year where I was doing exercise for about fifteen to thirty minutes every night, and that was great. A year's enough to have noticed a difference. I mean, um, did, did you? Oh yeah, I I definitely noticed a difference. Like my my muscle mass not not huge. It was using only um, just body weight exercises, mm-hmm. but still, like my my muscle tone was much greater. The fat was slim, but we also walked everywhere. So we got that exercise. Plus, I would do bodyweight exercises in the evening. And then since we've been in the U.S., we've tried to do more yoga as well. And with that... That seems like a good, something I should do. Yeah. got to add that to my list. Flexibility to me right now is more important than muscle mass. Yeah, okay. Um, so yoga for me is... is ooh, sorry. Uh, Alexa thought I said something to her. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Flexibility is huge because when I'm painting, so my mm. studio, I, I need, I need an easel. It will save my life. Um, we just keep waiting to get a place, and that's been a whole debacle. Uh, so in the meantime, I've been using this table, and I stand when I work, which is much better than sitting for multiple reasons. And but I'm leaning over this table, and it's really bad on my shoulders the way that I work. And so an easel is really going to solve a lot of that struggle for me. But flexibility is way down when I'm working over top of a table all day, every day. I, yeah, I get that. And I think that when you don't have something like that, that forces you to notice these problems, that's when it's really easy to like fall into the habits. So like even I was saying, the backpack forced me to realize how you know bad my lack of movement was actually affecting mm-hmm. me. And I don't think I have anything that makes me realize my lack of flexibility, but I know it's there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that I... I will work on it. I mean, what I really want to do is join a, a basketball league or a tennis league or find somebody who's wanting to do that because I can I can play basketball all day and oh, get see. that cardio in and but I, I just need other people who are willing That's to really helpful because I I hate sports like all sports. <laughs> I have absolutely no desire to 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 play any of them. So did you, did you play as a kid? I did. I played hockey as a kid um, and I loved it. I was, I was really into it, but the idea of like buying all the hockey gear and finding, yeah, finding a group of people to play with doesn't, that's just not going to happen. My, my cousin who is, is on this show often ish, we're similar in age, both played hockey all through our youth together and he just kept playing it. So, you know, we're both in our thirties now, but he's still playing hockey every week and I'm jealous of that. Like, I think that's great. And actually he plays with his dad, who's you know, dad age. So, uh, oh, wow. like that's fantastic. And I, you know, it'd be good if I'd kept it up, but not even close. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't played basketball in five or six years, but I still like, I love the idea. I'm wondering if I got back into it, if I would just hate it, but I loved it as a kid. Even tennis was great, but they're, they're such a good form of exercise that I'm not fighting myself to do. Maybe if I just did them, I would hate them less. It depends on who you play with. Right. Yeah. And well, it also depends on if you're any good at it to start with. That getting past that <laughs> yeah. being terrible hurdle can be a a big one. You gotta yeah. you gotta force through until you're half competent. Fair enough. I I kind of want to wrap up talking about coffee just because uh, you know I teased it. <laughs> What's your coffee regimen every day of both at home and and was it different on the road? So on the road it was an espresso every day. On the road we didn't. I wasn't able to make. Well, no, I guess it depended. So when we were in Italy. 
everybody had the mocha, the mocha machine. So I would make or put that on the stove and heat that up and I would buy the coffee specifically for the mocha and I would make that every day. That was fantastic. Is there a brand of common European coffee that's like a good go-to? Because whenever I buy, um, what are they called? Lavazza? Yeah, Lavazza. And yeah, and buying Illy coffee, they they just, neither of them are very good and they're everywhere and they don't recognize any (laughs) other brands. So yeah. do you, like, what did you buy? Do you know? I usually would find a, like a local roaster. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a safer bet. Coffee in Croatia, though, mm-hmm. disaster. Mm-hmm. Disaster. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find anybody who who had good coffee. It was there were there was there were several brands. I don't remember the name of any of them now. And I would buy them and experiment with different ones, and they were all terrible. Even but I still drank coffee two, three times a day in Croatia just because at that point it's habitual, but it was terrible. Even the espresso, you go to a shop and get an espresso in Croatia. I think that's kind of common in Europe that a lot of the espresso culture is, um, so it's ubiquitous. Everywhere makes espresso. And it's, a European espresso is way better than a bad American coffee, but it's still not good. (laughs) It's still like, generally the espresso you can buy everywhere, the average is pretty bad, I think. Yeah, and yeah. there's not as much of that. I guess it depends which country. In the countries that are coming to mind, I don't know. Definitely Italy. The <laughs> the the normal is like is terrible, and there isn't as much of that like third wave coffee that we have in Canada yeah. and the U.S. And I think Japan has a lot of it as well. And I, I mean, I know it's everywhere. I know London's got its fancy coffee shops, but a normal London coffee is not good. <laughs> but it's okay. So anyway, yeah. I was gonna say it's just like there's this really weird difference of like. This espresso is everywhere and you drink so much more of it when you're there. And I I like it. Like I kind of like the bad espresso flavor, but it's hard to find the really good ones. We've definitely had this conversation and then subsequently I've had this conversation with lots of other people. When it comes to coffee, Italians invented espresso. This is like 1901, I think. Yeah. And then they quit. They're like, we did it. We figured it out. And then <laughs> they quit. They were done. Um, but that's actually why when I saw Anya was going to Dittar Giginale, in Florence, I was so happy. That was one of the few places in all of Italy that I had been where the coffee was great. All right. Well, uh, next time, I guess, maybe we'll both end up at PT uh, uh, next year. Yes. And then what's your preferred uh, brewing method at home? I, right now, I'm only doing AeroPress. Okay. I'm still living off of the like nomadic lifestyle. So AeroPress is just simple and easy to travel with. And so I've just been using that. Um, but I enjoy it. I drink two to three of those every day, unless I'm going out for espresso. So I switched from AeroPress maybe three years ago to pour over. Yeah. Beca- mostly because of like the ease of cleaning. Oh. I just found it like a little bit quicker to get through. And there was a little less of like a two-step process because with the AeroPress, you're also, I guess you're like, you're making the shots and then, so you're basically making an espresso and then you decide yeah. how to, you know, fix it into a, what kind of coffee you want. If you're just going to drink it as is or add anything to it. And I prefer having kind of the volume of a pour over. So I get uh, sort of like a, a mug worth, which will last me longer. I find when I drink, yeah. if I'm just drinking espresso, I just drink way too much because I keep drinking them. Those little, oh, really? Oh yeah. When, when Whenever we're at a hotel with like those uh, Nespresso, espresso machines, you know, the, yeah. the, the ones, the small capsules, I just power through them. I'm just like, boom, gone. Okay. Mm. Maybe I need one more because <laughs> yeah. that was, that was the moment just doesn't last long enough. Like if I, the sips are too small to to stretch it out over time. So that's, that's the main reason. Like I'll usually make a basic, a pretty strong, small, like an eight ounce cup. 
and that's that's kind of like perfect for me. So I found pour over be the the quickest good coffee I, I could make. That that I mean, so I love coffee. I used to drink it too much, and I would get the jitters, and it would ruin me. And I've, I've slowly evolved my personal experience to espresso being the peak because I get a full coffee experience, great impact of flavor. Uh, if somebody's really good, they can do a really good job. So then I can judge them for it. Yeah, you can. It does let you be more judgmental, for sure. <laughs> and but then it's a small dose, right. so I can get my caffeine. I can enjoy the experience, but I'm not sipping on it for hours. That slow drip of caffeine would kill me. Oh, see, that's what I like is the the hours. <laughs> I love the experience, but it, yeah. it just ruins me. Matt, this was really great. I'm so glad we could catch up on a million topics. I mean, I think we only got to ten out of a million, but it was. It was productive. Yeah. And um, if anybody didn't go to your Instagram account yet, Sunflower Man, they should know. Is there anywhere else online that they should go or are they going to find it all there? I mean, go to Instagram or just Google Sunflower Man and you'll find me. <laughs> you and only you. You're the one and only yeah. Sunflower Man. Matt, thank you so much. Hopefully we can talk again soon. All right. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs>